Right, we're picking back up in Matthew chapter 6, in the middle of Jesus' great sermon on the mount. Now, sometimes Jesus says stuff in the Sermon on the Mount that completely jives with our experience. Like, he says it, and we reflexively nod and go, yeah, I know what that's like. Like, last week, Jesus said to us, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. And most of us, instantly got our Lord's point. Money, wealth, the drive for security, it's like a master. How many of us have sat up in the middle of the night in the glow of our blue-filtered iPhone screens hovering over the balance in our bank accounts, wondering if it's going to get us through the next two weeks? If that hasn't been you recently, it is for other people in this room We can relate to that. Money has a tyrannical power over us, and it doesn't even need to be around to exercise that power. Even in its absence, money can torture us, keeping us awake at night. Sleep deprivation, after all, is a subtle form of torture. So when Jesus said to us last week, no one can serve two masters, we knew what he meant. Jesus' description of the power of money fits our experience. At other points, though, Jesus proposes ways of viewing the world that seem totally opposed to our experience, totally counterintuitive to what we actually experience in the world. And I think we've arrived at one of these points today. In our gospel reading that Jay read just a minute ago, Jesus' teaching about anxiety seems almost foolishly naive. Jesus seems to be looking at the natural world, at least at certain instances in the natural world where things are hunky-dory, and drawing a conclusion for his disciples that God is like that. Life is like that. So I'm really sensitive to what my skeptical friends hear Jesus saying. Consider the sparrows. But considering the sparrows is exactly why my skeptical friends balk at the claims of Christianity. Jesus paints this idyllic picture of the sparrows getting their fill of grass, but just outside the frame hovers a hawk with flexed talons ready to come down on that sparrow. Right? In the grass, while the sparrow's happily munching away, there's a viper coiled. You know, ready to like unhinge its jaws. Vipers have hinged jaws. I don't know how it works. But ready to go after that sparrow. God is going to give the hawk and the viper their food too. And guess what's on the menu? <laughs> so, so right in the middle of this illustration of God's comforting provision are creatures turning other creatures into cadavers. Considering the sparrows, far from confirming Jesus' view of the world, seems to debunk Jesus' view of the world, at least from my skeptical friends. On the other hand, you may be a Christian, and this scripture may be difficult for you for another reason. It may be that some of you who hear uh, these verses 
regardless of the fact that you know Jesus, you trust in him. You long for these to be true of your life, but they're not. And that's why it's hard. You feel so deeply that when our Lord says, don't be anxious, you feel psychologically and spiritually and emotionally incapable of obeying that command. The beauty and tenderness of Jesus' words here, to some of us, it's a great blessing, and to others of us, it's like a dagger in the heart of a disciple who struggles with anxiety. So I'll be honest, initially I'd conceived of this sermon as kind of an apologetic sermon. I was going to try to talk to my skeptical friends. I'd planned to convince those of you who are with them uh, that Jesus' view of the world is a view that any rational person can accept. And actually that objection is wrong-headed. And the Lord convicted me that my driving motivation in preaching a sermon like that on a text like this was just pride. It'd be a bit like a doctor with a patient who needed a broken bone to be set. And instead of setting the bone, I read to the patient an article on osteoporosis. (laughs) So for generation upon generation in the church, pastoral work has been understood as soul care. The pastor is to offer medicine for the soul through the regenerative word of God and through the sacramental medicines of baptism and holy communion. And I mention this only because I had almost succumbed to my own anxiety, right, in preaching that kind of sermon, very nearly making an unwitting sermon illustration out of myself by preaching a sermon intended to impress you rather than to heal you. Anxiety has this crazy way of making you forget others and turn in on yourself. Every one of us wrestles with anxiety to some extent. For some of us, it just blips occasionally on our radars. For others of us, anxiety dominates our lives. But none of us make it through life unscathed by it. So let's just take a minute by talking about what anxiety is and isn't. First, anxiety is not a sin. Christians need to understand that having a troubled heart is not sinful. John makes it clear in his gospel several times that Jesus experienced a troubled heart. Historic Christian teaching says that in Christ, God the Son assumed human nature, becoming one of us in every respect, the sole exception being sin. This makes it very difficult indeed to say that anxiety is a sin. Anxiety is not a sin, it's a burden. And it's a burden that our Lord Himself bore. Or look at the Apostle Paul. How about that reading from 1 Corinthians 4, right? Paul, right before telling the Christians in Philippi not to be anxious about anything, said that he was sending his companion Epaphroditus to Philippi, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. 
My point here is that we need to guard against this pseudo-Christian piety that all of you have seen on somebody's Facebook wall, right? Which sees anxiety as a badge of spiritual feebleness. It isn't. So what is anxiety? We've got some godly gifted counselors in this congregation who could give you a much um, more thorough answer. Let me give you a very concise answer as I understand it from Jesus here and then encourage you to talk to the counselors later. For Jesus, anxiety is the burden of a divided heart. That's the key thing in this sermon this morning. Anxiety is the burden of a divided heart. And in order to see that, all you need to do is look at the link that Jesus teases out between anxiety and money in verse 25. So if you've got your Bibles or your phones, go to Matthew 6. Look at verse 25 where uh, Jay picked up the reading this morning. Jesus taught us last week, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. And then, right out of the hatch, in verse 25, he uses a very important word. Therefore. Precisely because God doesn't want your heart by halves, but by the whole. Don't be anxious. Your heart belongs to him wholly. What Jesus is saying is that which of these two masters you choose to serve radically determines how you experience the world. But if your heart remains divided, if I've not made the active decision that it's not me but God who is first in my life, then anxiety is going to flow from my divided heart. Now here's another unique Thing about how Jesus approaches anxiety. For Jesus, here in Matthew's gospel, anxiety isn't a purely emotional idea. It's just really important. Anxiety, this word that Jesus uses, it also carries the connotation of frantic work or of striving. You think of someone kind of sitting there at a desk, like doing this with their thumbs, right? So anxiety here, it's not just anxiety in this kind of cognitive or emotional sense. It's anxiety that's physically expressed. We work out our anxiety in the world. Think about what Jesus taught uh, his disciples just before teaching them the Lord's Prayer. He's teaching them how to pray. And the first thing he does is warns them against heaping up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. He's saying, don't do this. The Gentiles' ignorance of Israel's heavenly father led them to toil in prayer, to strive to go again and again and again and again and again. They heaped up phrases. And what was true of the way they prayed was also true of the way they worked. Israel was not to toil like the nations. Anxiety, remember, is not purely emotional. It's physical. We work it out in the world. Israel's not to toil like the nations. They were forbidden 
from working feverishly as if their CVs and their checkpoints and their profits or their accomplishments defined them. Israel was to obey the fourth commandment. They were to honor the Sabbath, to rest on the Sabbath day. Now, here's the thing. The Sabbath principle was to infuse their whole lives. They were not to keep the Sabbath commandment in the letter while violating the Spirit. Striving for six days just so they could catch a breath and then violate the Sabbath commandment uh, again over the next six days. That's a violation of the Sabbath. That's striving. Our Lord forbids a deliberately naive childishness which says, I rest just so that I can go out and toil. That's what's going on when the Lord talks about anxiety. There's a fundamentally secular approach to work that says, I rest so that I may toil. And it's contrary to the command of our Lord. Jesus says, therefore, because your heart belongs wholly to God, Don't toil. Don't strive. Now that doesn't mean that we don't go about our work and it doesn't nullify the dignity of our vocations and it doesn't mean that we don't work gruelingly. What it means is that the person who most glorifies God is the person who dethrones mammon and its idolatry of vocation or frenetic activity And who, in its place, enthrones Christ, to whom our vocations belong, and in the enjoyment of whom our vocations are to consist. Let me put it differently. If we don't see our vocations as the personal property of Jesus Christ, we have divided hearts. If our goal in our vocation is to strive for God rather than to enjoy God, We have divided hearts. Anxiety is the burden of a divided heart. But this is the way of our world, isn't it? Doesn't it seem like Jesus is commending this hippy-dippy nonsense to people who just need to get on with their work? I mean, there's an element here of stop and smell the flowers. I mean, he's, he's literally saying that, isn't he? At the very least, it seems like this is a way that we would like to view the world. We just can't quite sort out how we could ever do it in our circumstances, right? With our family, our job, our pace, whatever. So look, here's the amazing thing. Over the course of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been presenting himself as the new Moses, right? Remember back in the book of Exodus, Moses comes out on the mountain and he gives the law of God. Jesus is the new Moses coming and standing on the mountain, giving the law in its fullness. But he drops some hints here. In the last section, Jesus did this thing where he says, there are two ways. You can go the way of God or you can go the way of money. There's the way of life. There's the way of death. And that's a trademark of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. It makes you think of Solomon. 
And then Jesus does this funny thing in this section where actually he brings Solomon up, right? Not even Solomon in all of his splendor was arrayed like one of these. What's he doing? I think for just a second, Jesus is stepping out of the mantle of of Moses and he's slipping into the robes of Solomon. And he's offering us not just the law in its fullness, but the wisdom of God in its fullness. And now I'm going to go back to my notes, okay? In the book of Proverbs, we see Solomon's concerns for the proper use of earthly things. It's a, it's a trademark of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. How do we engage with, interact with, use, value the most mundane things in our lives? So in Proverbs, we see the way that Solomon addresses those things. And in Ecclesiastes. But Solomon came to be remembered for just the opposite. He came to be remembered for his greed for earthly splendor. For acquiring all those wives, remember? In fact, for deviating from those very rules which Proverbs sets out. Jesus picks up on that in verse 29. And that's a hint, again, together with last week's two ways, the way of God or the way of money argument, that Jesus is presenting himself as a new Solomon. And the point is that Jesus, too, cares for the way that we treat the most mundane things of our lives, the most common objects, the most common people. But this new Solomon teaches us to see and esteem and engage with these objects and these people in light of the kingdom of God, which has arrived in Jesus. And this is the great wisdom that the new Solomon offers. Now, as you hear this, I want you to keep in mind the Jewishness of what Jesus is saying. Therese of Lisieux is a Roman Catholic saint who talked a lot about the little way. And I think we're looking at something like that here. An emphasis not on the great and lordly and mighty things that the Gentiles do, but on the common and the mundane and the little, which takes on an infinite significance in the light of the kingdom of God. Keep that in mind as we listen to verse 33. Listen to the words of the new Solomon. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And when Jesus says his righteousness, see how closely he links it to the kingdom. Jesus is saying, now that the kingdom has come above all else, prioritize it. And how do you play out those priorities? It's not in the grand, mighty ways that the Gentiles play things out. It's in the mundane and in the common, and in the little. That means that you play out the coming of the kingdom of God nowhere else more fully than you do in your families. The people that you spend every day with. Or if not your family, the people that you spend the most time with. Our church family. 
the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard was with Jesus here. He said, purity of heart is to will one thing. He is faithfully rearticulating Jesus' point here. If you want a whole heart, Jesus says, pursue the kingdom. If you want to find rest from the burden of anxiety, seek the kingdom. So what I want to say to you is, the kingdom has come, so live like it. And don't do it in the grandiose, lordly ways of the Gentiles. Do it in the way that Jesus has in mind. Pay attention to the sparrows and to the grass of the field, to your kids and your aging parents and the people sitting a little bit down the row from you. One commentator I came across observed that the battle for hearts between God and mammon, mammon being the spirit of wealth or acquisition or achievement or industry or self-justification, that battle plays out in three highly personal areas. So I said this was going to kind of be a medicinal sermon. So I'm going to ask some diagnosis questions. And then I'm going to give you a promise. And then we're going to pray. Here are those three highly personal areas. First, your time. What are you giving your time to? Or Maybe a better way to ask it, what are you not giving your time to? If the kingdom has come, ennobling the most mundane areas of our everyday lives with eternal significance and casting our grandiose, self-centered, and often idolatrous delusions down from the thrones of our hearts, how has that changed the way you use your time? What do your friends say? Are you listening to the people closest to you? What does your spouse say? As you chew on Holy Scripture in prayer, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you? Okay, second area, your attention. What is it that lures your attention away from God? What is it that crowds out your prayer life? What do you find yourself thinking about as you drift to sleep at night? What's the first thing on your mind when you wake up in the morning? What is it that your mind flits to when your thoughts wander? Seek first the kingdom. Okay, finally, your devotion. Your time, your attention. Your devotion. What consumes your heart? What do you go all out for? You may be devoting a day of Sabbath to the Lord. Are you devoting a life of Sabbath to the one who died for you in order that you might participate not just in the life to come, but now in his rest? Anxiety is not a sin. 
It's a burden. And our Lord makes very clear what he does for those who offer him his burdens. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray.